and welcome to the Hedge Witches Almanac, where we are talking all about Beltane. I'm Carly. And I'm Rachel. And we are so happy to be back talking about this bright and happy time of the Hedge Witches Wheel of the Year. Beltane sings of life flourishing, everything is growing, the world is lush and green, and every colour really as flowers are popping out all over. Beltane is a fire festival that originates from the Celtic god Belenos, one of the sun gods. The word bel meaning the bright one and the Gaelic word tain meaning fire. Together they make bright fire or goodly fire and traditionally bonfires were lit to honour the sun and encourage the support of Bell and the sun's light to nurture the emerging future harvest and protect the community. Traditionally all fires in the community were put out and a special fire was kindled for Beltane. Right, pronunciation time. This was the Tyne Egan, the Need Fire. People jumped the fire to purify, cleanse, and to bring fertility. Couples jumped the fire together to pledge themselves to each other. Cattle and other animals were driven through the smoke, and this is known as saining. This was for protection from disease and to bring fertility too. At the end of the evening, the villagers would take some of the Tynegan to start their fires anew. I love that. I, lo I love that there's a big central fire and they all take their own little fires from that. I think that's a really lovely little idea. Um, Me too. Sorry, the, <laughs> <laughs> the Festival of Beltane is here again and the celebrations begin on the eve of April the 30th and throughout May the 1st. It's a day that heralds a magical month when the unseen can be seen, the sun waxes almost full and the life force of nature is at its highest. It's a time of magic, joy, nature and possibility and you can feel its vibrations tingling in the air. It's the last of the three spring fertility festivals heralding the arrival of summer. We've had some amazing sunshine this week and God have I needed it. It's been really like you feel it like um, soaking into your skin and it just makes you feel amazing doesn't it? Oh my goodness honestly I feel like um, <clears throat> we've packed in like tons of information on this episode as well because Beltane is one of my favourite and there's just so much to um, you know cover really so I feel like we've like hit everyone straight off today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> too much too much let's uh, we'll uh, too much hope, information. hope to make it all amazing. So it's I a day make as well because I've given like Rachel a little bit of an outline it's my turn today to write about the Sabbath and I've I've sadly repeated a bit so sorry Rachel. <laughs> just noticed that yeah I was like oh no I can't say that again that's okay. <laughs> so Beltane honours life. It represents the peak of spring and the beginning of summer. Earth energies are at their strongest and most active. All of life is bursting with potent fertility. And at this point in the wheel of the year, the potential becomes conception. On May Eve, the sexuality of life and the earth is at its peak. Abundant fertility on all levels is the central theme. The maiden goddess has reached her fullness. She is the manifestation of growth and renewal. Flora, the goddess of spring, the May queen, the May bride, the young oak king as Jack in the green, as the green man, falls in love with her and wins her hand. 
The union is consummated and the May Queen becomes pregnant. Together, the May Queen and the May King are symbols of the sacred marriage, the union of earth and sky. And this union has merrily been reenacted by humans throughout the centuries. For this is the night of the Greenwood marriage. It is about sexuality and sensuality, passion, vitality and joy, and about conception, a brilliant moment in the wheel of the year to bring ideas, hopes and dreams into action and have some fun. Yeah. As Beltane <laughs> yeah. is the great wedding of the goddess and the god, it is a popular time for pagan weddings or hand fastings. I think I'd say it's um, a popular time just for weddings in general, isn't it? I mean, I know that's with the weather, mm. but everything kicks off and you wonder how much of the um, collective conscious taps into the fact that it is all about that, those feelings and conception and all those things. Absolutely. So, We've got a little family wedding. My my lovely little brother who actually helps produce the podcast, he's actually getting married this, um, well, not long after Beltane, actually. So, yeah, it's quite a special one this year. Oh, that is amazing. I don't think I knew that. That's really exciting. I know. <laughs> They've been engaged forever, bless them. But, yeah, it's quite <laughs> exciting. So, I mean, you know, to be fair, you know, the last couple of years have not gone a bit bandy, so it hasn't yeah. happened. But, yeah, it's quite exciting to have a, uh, and you know, a real kind of family wedding. And I'm sure that they'll be kind of doing the whole, you know, I, I kind of feel it would be quite pagany in a sense. So I'm looking forward to that. I think just when it's someone really close to you as well getting married you know that you're going to know most of the people or a lot of the people and it just becomes an even greater event for you you can go to a friend's wedding who you know a bit and have a nice time but when it's someone in your immediate family I think there's nothing better exactly exactly so we refer to hand fastings which is a traditional betrothal for a year and a day after which the couple would either choose to stay together or part without any recrimination Today, the length of commitment is a matter of choice for the couple and can often be for life. Hand fasting ceremonies are often unique to the couple, but include common elements. Most importantly, the exchange of vows and rings or another token of their choice. The act of hand fasting always involves tying the hands, um, hand fasting uh, or tying the knot of the two people involved. In a figure of eight, um, is this what they do in Braveheart? Yeah, and like I'm sure I've seen Vikings as well. And I actually was really fascinated on this because I kind of realised I've not delved into the kind of marriage side of, you know, the witchy side, the pagan side that much. So it was quite good to get it on today's episode. There are a few bits actually that I, you know, um, that I was keen to get into some of the really old traditions on today. Yeah, this is really interesting and not something I particularly think about, although once I do, I really like it and want to understand more about it. Mm. Um, so, yes, wrap it in a figure of eight. And at some point in the ceremony, that's ha that happens. And later they unbind it, which is done either with a red cord or a ribbon. Um, tying the hands together symbolizes that the two people have come together and the untying means that they re remain together of their own free will. I didn't know they did it with a red cord and that always makes me think of the old tradition with the red string you know when you're meant to be connected to somebody by that and I've always loved that idea where you know it's like a fate it, it is kind of of the fates who you're tied yeah. to I quite like yeah. that whole concept yeah. as well 
This is the well, other part of the tradition. Oh, sorry, Rachel. <laughs> I was just going to say it allows you to play with the idea as well, because if you were to do something like this with yourself, for yourself with somebody else, you can think about colour magic and what colour you would like to introduce mm -hmm. to give whatever meanings you want to something, you know? Absolutely. And this time of year is all about, you know, the kind of love work and, and you know, sex magic and, you know, and, and actually rekindling things as well, tying into the fire theme. But linked to this, so another common element is jumping the broomstick. So this goes back to a time when two people who could not afford a church ceremony or, you know, possibly didn't want one, would be accepted in the community as a married couple if they literally jumped over a broom laid on the floor. So the broom marked a threshold moving from an old life to a new one. So that's quite interesting. So I guess it's like when, you know, someone carries you over the threshold as well. It's like a similar concept. There's so many things that are a metaphorical. You do a physical act or talk of a physical act, but really it has a metaphorical meaning. So like um, jumping the hedge or riding the hedge, you know, um, yeah. isn't really about literally hopping over it. Although obviously in this jumping the broomstick, they do physically do it but it's more about the meaning that's attributed to it I think if ever I have like the whole jumping the broomstick thing they're gonna have to be about six for eight and built like a brick ship <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna need scaffolding that's quite a big thing but <laughs> to see this now like... the broomstick. that'll be a lot easier a lot easier so <laughs> So when it comes to jumping the broomstick, mead and cakes were often shared in communion as part of the ceremony. Mead is known as the brew of the divine, which is made from honey, which is very appropriate for a love ceremony and is said to be the oldest alcoholic drink known to humankind. So hand fasting or not, this is where it gets a bit fruity, both young and old when amaying, Couples spent the night in the woods and fields, made love and brought back armfuls of the first May or hawthorn blossoms to decorate their homes and barns. So hawthorn was never brought into the home except at Beltane. At other times it was considered unlucky. Young women gathered the dew of the May Day morning to wash their faces. They made flower crowns and May baskets to give as gifts. And everyone was free to enact the sacred marriage of goddess and God. And there was an accepted tradition of Beltane babies arriving nine months later. <laughs> I love that. Um... <laughs> Do you know, I think because we're of a generation, I'm assuming that you have this too, where May Day was a proper thing that you celebrate in school. We actually learned Maypole dancing at times. Um, and it's bringing back our lovely memories of that time of year. Yeah, but um, I never knew it was like, I mean, who, I think my mum always used to snigger a little bit about it being, you know, very phallic. <laughs> <laughs> but we had no idea we thought it was so innocent and yeah genuinely and you know all I ever thought about was the Maypole and Morris dancers that's about it who knew it was a sex fest <laughs> <laughs> it literally exactly. was there's it's lots more to celebrate why not <laughs> Yeah, they just like, and actually, I, you know, married couples, yeah, they just kind of, um, you know, I, I think I might have said it, but they, I also read that they just, you know, just slip the wedding ring off for that night and have a little dalliance and, oh, really? you know, all the usual roles, they had a hall pass, all usual roles, <laughs> like rules did not apply, just 
off you go. Yeah. <laughs> F and Doris, that, that rule did not apply that night. You think you just do whatever they want <laughs> until tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Until so. next day when they're like grilling each other at the kitchen table and getting the hump about it. But yeah, for that night, it was, you know, it was, it was fine. <laughs> I've got the funniest images of that, you know, like you say, across the kitchen table, arms folded, like, <laughs> like grilling each other. Yeah. About it. I've got to stop. Um, the Maypole is a popular and familiar image of May Day and Beltane. A phallic pole, often made from birch, was inserted into the earth, representing the potency of God. I knew I wouldn't get through this without giggling. I'm sorry. Um, the ring of flowers at the top of the Maypole represents the fertile goddess. Its many coloured ribbons and the ensuing weaving dance symbolise the spiral of life and the union of the goddess and god, the union between earth and sky. The colours of Beltane are green, red, white or silver. And green represents growth, abundance and fertility. Red represents strength, vitality, passion and vibrancy. White represents cleansing and clearing and the power to disperse negativity. This is a time when we hold the agricultural and fertility gods and goddesses in higher esteem than usual. Some of those gods and goddesses are, oh, you've given me names. Okay. <laughs> Gaia, the triple moon goddess. Oh, what? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Flora, right, uh, Hera, Bez, or I want to say Bez, but then that's like, is that <laughs> <after> Mondays? <laughs> what I went for as soon as I saw there was Bez on there I thought she's got to come with a happy Monday thing and I love that guy the one that just dances around inanely like literally his mind is addled from decades of drugs bless him like just smashing the tambourine so yeah Bez the Egyptian god not the one you're thinking of sorry pan the Greek and, and Bacchus, I feel like I can pronounce that one, the Roman yeah. version. So um, before Carly starts with our plant magic section, and actually before I go on to the next bit, we've added a little additional section to the end of this one, haven't we? You haven't referred to this later on, I don't think, have you? So I had the happy occasion to stumble across a book which is all about local folklore, um, local to where I live. And in that found a story that was about Beltane in that it refers to Bell and Danu and got in touch with the author. And we actually have a little interview at the end, at the end of our normal um, programme of events. What do we call it? Structure of podcast. There's a little interview um, and a telling of that story. So I'll just refer to that now in case I forget later on. So before we do proceed with plant magic, thank you. Um, there's a poem called Beltane by Ian Anderson. Have you ever stood in the April wood and called the new year in? And while the phantoms of 3000 years fly as the dead leaves spin, there's a snap in the grass behind your feet and a tap upon your shoulder and the thin wind crawls along your neck. It's just the old gods getting older. That one gives me goosebumps. Me too, yeah, proper tingles. I love that. <laughs> Before we move on from the phallic maypole, I just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out actually to Howard Alexander, who got in contact with me to say that he he listens to the podcast and he said that he's made a mini maypole. I love this. 
um, a mini maypole using apple wood and he used like recycled like biodegradable colored strips of paper in like all the traditional colors and he was saying that basically a new one goes up each may day and um he's kept the hoop from it as the symbol of the goddess and fertility for the year ahead he hangs it up in the house for the rest of the year then on the last day of april the following year so the next year he has an all-night beltane fire and burns the following year's maypole hoop the ashes are scattered on his outdoor altar for when the next year's maypole goes up and i absolutely love that and i just thought I had to give him a little shout out because I feel that was a really nice little tradition that actually, you know, we could all, you know, if you're feeling the need to create your own phallic uh, maypole, then yeah, I think it's quite a nice little practice. That is amazing. It's just, I've got a mm. hazel branch that's come off my hazel tree at the allotment. I think I might do something similar, but that's so lovely. If, if, um, if he's willing to share any pictures, we could post them up to give people some inspiration. I've got some pictures and I'll see if I can if um, I can put them up but I'm sure he won't mind but yeah I just thought that was brilliant and um, you know you just need to hire a little group of Morris dancers and you're good to go it's like the whole <laughs> things set up and lots of cake you know and, and always British with tea and things like things like that anyway talking of tea for plant magic today I'm going to be talking to you about borage this is one of my favorites because I particularly like borage tea but overall just a fan of the beautiful blue that this plant has so Rachel do you work with borage do you use borage much at all <laughs> I've got um a previous um I can't go back and think of my words today although I think that happens every time so I think that's just me a previous offence of having saved oh, yeah. some blue flowers, preserved them in ice cubes to put in drinks that weren't borage at all. <laughs> I do now know the difference between this blue flower that I used and um, borage. Um, yes, I we have it in the garden, actually. It used to be on my allotment plot that I shared with a friend and um, I brought a little bit home. So it, I think it's not it's not a perennial plant. It's an annual, but it self seeds. So it pops up in slightly different places. But yeah, I, I do. I do use borage. Yes. No, love it. Love it. So borage, it's magical properties. It's great for psychic powers, courage, protection, happiness, peace. Increase your psychic abilities by drinking borage tea. You might want to keep borage flowers on the table when you do any kind of divination to help you with your reading. You can sprinkle borage around your home to bring in protection, use it indoors to keep a peaceful household. Use borage to bring about happiness. It is said that, and again, pronunciation time, Pliny came to, claimed that borage makes you happy, but it's also good to uplift your spirits. Its ruling planet is Jupiter. It's in the sign of Leo and Aquarius. Its element is air, and it's said to be of a masculine energy. So some other names that it goes by are Brago officinalis, Starflower, burridge, bee plant, bee bread, bougloss, herb <laughs> of gladness. I know, I like that one. Borac, not borat, Lisan Selvi, Lesan Elator. We've also got Cool Tankard and Euphrosinium. 
So this lovely little plant is great for those who set themselves impossible standards and cause themselves exhaustion as a result. I'm sure many of us can relate. But also by extension for those who are extremely self-critical and never give themselves a break. There's an old saying that states in regards to borage, I borage bring always courage. So use it as well if you are facing big decisions, major life changes, at times that you might be scraping the bottom of the energy barrel, but it also somehow manages to take the edge off panic, making for a cool head and rational decisions. I think these are the most specific benefits that we've had at all through things. Like that's really detailed as to exactly what it does. Um, you know sometimes mm. it's like oh it, it can do this it can boost your immunity or it can do this or whatever but that's so specific I love that if you, you know everyone knows someone who sets too high standards for themselves don't they? <laughs> like here drink some borage honestly there's more this this will like blow your socks off so borage is used in spells and incenses to bring courage and strength for character so again you know courage is a theme through and throughout um, it's also said to bring hope, lift the spirits in dark and difficult times. It's associated with the Hierophant card in the tarot, but it's also great to use in spells for strength of purpose. So regards to, you know, kind of work that you feel that you're meant to be doing or what your, you know, purpose is in general. And you might also want to use this herb in rituals to explore the warrior's path. Now, this is the bit that blew my socks off. I really love this. Um, so it's obviously got a lot of masculine energy. So I feel like it can kind of, you know, work on the warrior side of your, and, and you know, even, I mean, as a female, like I, I love that concept of drawing on the kind of masculine energy and pulling that in. Um, and you can also use it as an incense if you work perhaps with, you know, various warrior gods. And for me, like, I love this concept because, you know, I feel like I'm sort of starting to feel the need to bring in a masculine deity into my practice currently. So kind of like really honed in on that part of borage, really, and something that I'd like to use it for. That's really, we've talked about this a lot, haven't we? How we've both got quite strong sense of our, of our own masculine side of our personality. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, yeah I'm, I wonder whether this time of year as well, when it is about the, the marriage between both feminine and masculine, it's so perfect that it's in flower around this time. I think this might be something I want to explore a bit more as well. Oh, I love that. I didn't think about that. Not just marriage externally, like marriage with yourself of your two sides, like okay. and getting fired up because Beltane being a fire festival. I don't know about you, but the minute that it gets this time of year, I'm like, I'm alive. You know, I feel yeah. like <laughs> all these like, you know, you know, I start to feel, you know, alive again and feel things again and that excitement for it's just the the whole when the the world you know when when nature becomes alive I think we all get that that sense that fire in our belly again um and that certainly feels the case of borage you know it's it's such a like beautiful little flower but it's it's definitely got a lot of strength in it so 
The borage with its gallant blue flower that I've just referenced is cultivated in our gardens, often as a pot herb, and is associated in our minds also with bees. It grows wild in abundance on open plains where the soil is favorable. It's also called star flower. So this is one of like the main other names that it has. It's an annual flowering herb that's from the flowering plant family. Boraginakai. It has, again, really bright blue flowers, hairy leaves. It has that cottage garden feel and strangely a cucumber type smell from its bristly foliage. So borage has edible leaves and flowers and I've sort of added them to salads. Again, you can add them to ice cubes you know they're great I've seen people add them a lot to drinks with gin so really good for summer months it self seeds and germinates really easily bees love it it provides them with a nutritious blue pollen and overall encourages pollinators to your garden so back to the old courage theme Borage was carried to give courage and protection when in the wilds and was believed to protect against melancholy and if in a worst state, lunacy. So yeah. just got to say this again, like, you know, it does have um, a really good ability to take the edge off and relax you. So the one thing I kept seeing was drink a cup before meditating. It really helps promote your psychic abilities you might want to add it to a ritual bath to use it to raise your spirits if you're feeling particularly low or just you know just need a little bit of support um again you know it's a really like traditional use to sprinkle an infusion of it around the house to ward off evil Roman soldiers would eat borage and medieval knights had the flower embroidered on scarves. Again, all of that was to bring them courage in battle. So very simple, quick charm I've got for you is that you might want to fill a pretty magic sachet um, full of soil from the earth, some thyme and borage. And this was used to bring courage and insight to the one who carries it. So I think that's a particularly good little uh, Beltane charm that you might want to use for this time of year. You might want to use it as a little bit of courage when it comes to, I don't know, like your heart's desire, somebody that you've got your eye on, and you might need a little bit of courage to chat them up, who knows. But also Beltane being a time for the new and like new projects and anything that you might need courage that is a new beginning. So yes, you might want to have a go at making one of those. So the name Barago, another name for borage, quite possibly derives from the Latin corago, meaning to give heart or courage. Again, the same thing. Apparently, the herb may be the famed herbal wine that was mentioned by Homer that was used to bring complete forgetfulness. The herb was held as very sacred by the Druids and an alternate possibility concerning the name mentions that it may be derived from the Celtic word borach, meaning brave person. 
So the Celts would steep the leaves of the plants in, in wine and drink it before going into battle or any other daring escapades. So like think cattle raids and so on. And the herb has retained its popularity right up to present time. In the medieval period, it was a very popular garden plant. The Romans named the borage Ephrocinon because when put into a cup of wine, it would naturally make the drinkers of the same merry and glad. So from a medicinal perspective, and nutrition-wise, it's extremely nutritious as it holds high levels of calcium and iron and also potassium, zinc, B and C vitamins and beta-carotene. But you do want to eat this in moderation. Some studies suggest prolonged heavy usage can cause liver damage. You Probably the wine that went with it, to be fair. Yes. But <laughs> But no, you can add all the gin. You can add it to salads or you might want to crystallize it and decorate cakes or add to summer drinks with the beautiful flowers. So it's well known for its soothing quality. It's often used to treat nervous conditions as it does have that natural sedative effect. It lifts the spirits. It softens that nerve, softens that nervous edge that many of us experience. And borage oil has also been used for inflammation, acne, breast pain, cardiovascular disease, eczema, menopause, rosacea, and arthritis. So borage oil contains high amounts of gamma linolenic, linolenic acid, GLA, which is a fatty acid that's integral to the structure and function of your skin so this boosts like it gives it an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant property which can help promote wound healing and repair your skin's natural barrier so to grow sow the large black borage seeds directly where the plant is to flower from mid-spring after the last frost it forms a deep root, but it doesn't do well if transplanted. So just your best to just put, like plant it wherever you want it. Choose a well-drained site that gets sun for at least half the day. If the ground is heavy and slow to drain, I don't know, you might want to add some gravel and mound up the soil so water drains away more easily. Borage does best in soil low infertility, so there's no real need to add fertilizer or anything like that. It's not ideal for growing in containers, but if you're anything like me, this is something that I have to do this, this year. This is my only option. But if you are going to do that, you need to just take a large pot, at least 25 centimetres deep, over 30 centimetres wide. Some people advise that you add a bit of grit to it. I'm just going to not go there. I'm just going to go there with some basic compost. You know, with a lot of my gardening, if it doesn't survive well, have a bit of feed, have some decent compost, and that's kind I think of just got <laughs> just to water it too much because ours is. Um, I think everything's underneath my silver birch tree, but certainly that is, and obviously the soil's really dry there because the tree takes so much. I don't water it, and it just pops up every year and and then disappears again. So I think yeah, just don't look after it too well survival of the fittest exactly. exactly just no genuinely I feel like you know there's 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 only so much I've got to give <laughs> and it will sell seed if the faded flowers are left on the plant 
again, you know, that can be great because, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're, um, but if seeding is going to be a nuisance, you just might want to deadhead them before the seed develops. But just to finish up on our plant magic section, because I thought it would be quite important to mention these few, um, these three uh, bad boys, because they are so associated to Beltane. And these are the trees of Beltane. And I'm just going to go into them briefly. Um, so we've got Hawthorne, which I've already mentioned. Hawthorne is a deeply magical tree, one of the three trees at the heart of the Celtic tree alphabet, the fairy triad by oak, ash and fawn. Traditionally, Beltane began when the Hawthorne, the May, blossomed. I've seen so many recently. They are so beautiful. They are yeah like we've got so many at some fields near to me and they are just gorgeous um it is the tree of sexuality and fertility it's the classic flower to decorate a maypole with it was both worn and used to decorate the home at Beltane there is so much association with the Hawthorne and the Fae and a ton that me and Rachel have written about in our new little booklet we've produced but we'll tell you a little bit more about that later We've also got the birch, which is regarded as a feminine tree. Deities associated with birch are mostly love and fertility goddesses. It is one of the first trees to show its leaf in spring. So Ostara, the Celtic goddess of spring, was celebrated in festivities and dancing around and through the birch tree between the spring equinox and Beltane. So birch twigs were traditionally used to make besoms and um, Maypoles were often made from birch and birch reefs were given as lovers gifts. And lastly, the rowan, a tree of protection and healing. Branches of rowan were placed as protection over the doors of houses and barns at Beltane to protect from increased fairy activity as they woke from their winter slumber. And sprigs were worn for protection also. Rowan berries have a tiny five-pointed star on the bottom, reminiscent of the pentagram. I love all those trees. Well, I love trees, Same. but <laughs> all of those. That's really lovely. Um, <laughs> so we decided to actually join, not join forces exactly, but um, we thought the kitchen witchery could also be about forage. Obviously, Carly's spoken about how wonderful the plant is. So here are some recipes for ways that you can use this beautiful little plant in your kitchen witchery. So I found a recipe for soup. So we um, first thing I want to talk a little bit about soup. Like I'm just like oh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's it, you know it's, it, yeah, it's not what I was expecting, which is good. No. Well, I love making soup. So I wanted to talk about actually the process of making soup just briefly, like if it's interesting to anyone other than me. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's one of the most simple and magical ways to turn the health, emotional and spiritual benefits of plants into something to eat that's nourishing for every part of yourself. And its origins are ancient, which makes sense, I guess, if you think about how easy it is to make. Um, soup's mm. been on the menu from the first time that humans were able to create either mud or clay vessels or pots, or even apparently just a hole in the ground lined with animal skin, where they would put, you know, the water, the stuff, whatever they were making it from. So some sources estimate that 
it was a regular component of menus as early as 6000 BC. Um, and the website of a well-known British soup producer <laughs> states that it's that soup's origins in itself would could be as early as 20,000 BC. And I think that's from um, sort of China direction or something like that. So wow. cooking food in boiling water allowed it to be heated through more evenly than simply simply cooking it over a fire. And it also allowed for exploration of non-edible foods to establish whether through this process you could render them capable of consumption. And we've talked about this before, the whole trial and error of non-edible foods and things that you find out they're only edible after they've been cooked. And you think, poor, you know, Charlie over there who had to go first and it wasn't okay. But thank you. <laughs> thank you to those folk who've gone first. Um, <laughs> your sacrifice for this singular mushroom <laughs> so the word itself appears to have its origins in the latin word supper um, a bread soaked in broth which then gave the french word soup and ultimately our soup if you were to put the word soup into an online translator tool you'll find that the word for soup in a huge number of languages from spanish to korean to sudanese is similar to the word that we have in english um, whether relating to tangible items or ideas, words travel with the thing themselves. So you can therefore see how soup is a food that's enjoyed all over the world for good reason. With a few ingredients, many people can be fed from a pot of soup, meaning that where food is scarce, it can go further. So it's got obvious benefits for the continu continuation of the local community. Regardless of the ingredients you choose, it's got a warming, soothing quality and it's difficult not to feel better, I think, after a bowl of your favourite soup. It's mm. endless in variety. And can you tell how much I love soup? <laughs> it can be peppery and fiery or invigorating or calming or soporific. It can refresh and inspire or quieten and soothe. So given what we've heard about borage itself, a soup made from borage is capable of being cleansing, anti-inflammatory, soporific, um, protecting, providing courage and increasing psychic abilities. So why wouldn't you want to have borage soup in your bowl at lunchtime? That was so seamless, you know, the way that you did that <laughs> connected everything together, Rachel. I'm very impressed. Mm. So this borage soup I have taken from the Recipe of Health website and you will need half pound of finely chopped borage leaves. Now, when you pick borage leaves, I suggest you wear gloves because although it's not like nettle and stings you, the tiny, tiny hairs go into your arms. If you were to grasp the, the stem, it really hurts. So don't do that. Um, an ounce of butter, two ounces of pearl barley, which I also love, um, two pints of stock. This recipe suggests chicken stock, but I'm sure that vegetable stock is a perfectly good alternative. Two tablespoons of cream, yogurt, or any dairy-free alternative that you use, salt and pepper, and some fresh borage flowers. So in a large barley, that, that's I'm just gonna interject, Rachel. Like remind me, is that kind of pearl barley? What is that? <laughs> it's little white lentily things. Um yes, really so small, and you yeah. often get them in like a, a vegetable broth or something. Um, oh, yes, just lovely. Yes, yes. I do know, I do know. Yeah, I remember now. So in a pot, combine the barley and stock and cook until the barley is tender. And in a small saucepan separately, cook the borage leaves in the butter until they're tender. Add the leaves to the stock and bring to the boil, then reduce the heat and simmer for 10 minutes. 
season and taste and if um, allow it to cool before you put it in your blender um, and blending it until it's smooth and then you can reheat it when you're ready to serve and just before serving top it with cream yogurt or your dairy-free alternative and sprinkle a few of the brilliantly blue forage flowers on top i haven't tried it yet um, I've only got one or two plants come up this year, so um, I might just have to wait until I can find some somewhere else. I think there's loads down the allotment on different people's plots, but I'm definitely going to give it a go. OK, I so like rather than a tea recipe, because I know you've talked about borage tea, because um, borage can be made into delicious herbal teas. However, we're on our way into the warmest weather of the year. So I wanted to suggest a cooling drink with borage instead. So a website I think we've referred to before called The Spruce Eats describes this as a cocktail wonder straight out of your own garden. So who wouldn't want to give that a go? It's like an alcoholic recipe, but there's no reason why you can't substitute the gin in it with anything else that you fancy, non-alcoholic or otherwise. First thing you need to do is make borage syrup, which you do by combining one cup of water with one cup of granulated sugar and stirring over a medium heat until it's completely dissolved. And then you bring it to a slow boil. Add half a cup of borage leaves and the flowers and stir. Reduce the heat, cover and simmer for about 15 minutes, then remove from the heat, but leave it covered in the pan for at least one hour to allow the flavor of the borage to infuse in the syrup. Then you strain and bottle the syrup, which you can keep in the fridge for around two weeks. So you can use it you know, multiple times, depending on how thirsty you are for borage. The second part is to place borage flowers in an ice cube tray, making sure they are borage flowers and not alkanet, like I did, <laughs> and make borage flower ice cubes. This website suggests dry freezing them before you add the water, but I've definitely made them just by it's <laughs> going to take my advice when I've just said I've used a non-edible plant but but still I have made borage ice cubes just by chucking them in the water it's worked perfectly well so you can decide you know make your own judgment call on that once you've got your syrup and your ice you can combine your ingredients to make your cocktail and the suggested ingredients in this recipe are gin elderflower liqueur borage syrup and lime juice use what quantities you would like, I suppose. I'm quite sure that, you know, if my husband and his twin were to make them, you would have a huge amount of gin and liqueur and not so much of other things, whereas other people might go the other way. So shake to combine and strain into a chilled cocktail glass, adding the flowery ice cubes and top with soda water. I enjoy gin a bit sometimes, but I'm always more than happy with a mocktail. And I think it would make an equally delicious and refreshing summer drink to just use more soda or tonic water. Or you could get a bit more creative and come up with something that you would like, even just lemonade or something or anything else that you fancy. Oh, I like that. And just it's so the flowers are so pretty just for kind they of are. salads and the tops of, you know, cakes and things like that. So and I think, you know, great little like fairy offerings with like cake with borage on and things like that as well. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, such a little beauty. So I have spell work for Beltane and different things you might want to try within your craft from more the kind of ritual side of things or your altar. And I guess really the first would be to draw on the tradition of Beltane of kind of like dressing your home and your altar with greenery. So you know, especially with like hawthorn, rowan or birch branches. And again, you know, I mean, 
I kind of like to take things that might have fallen off the tree, you know, that have naturally landed on the ground. But, you know, you might have um, a tree of your own. Again, I would always say, like, ask permission from the tree before you take anything. You might want to add to your altar symbols of the maypole. I'm going to laugh now because one website <laughs> said you might want to add phallic um, <laughs> symbols. And I was just like visualizing people with dildos and things on them. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I don't no, know what I thought you were going to say, but it wasn't. <laughs> don't be sticking dick pics on your altar. Sorry. We're like lowering the tone today. It's because it's just the word phallic. Like, we're not doing toilet talk today. We're talking about. <laughs> phallic things moving on symbols of maypole floral crowns ribbons wreaths and baskets of flowers sorry that we lowered the tone so much today it's traditional colors <laughs> my face in my jumper like oh my god traditional colors for this time are green magenta yellow vivid blue like borage blue purple and red so flowers that you might wish to use are lilacs, roses, violets, daisy, mint, willow, ivy and mugwort. I have about 3,000 mugwort plants at the moment. So if any of you are in the Kent area and looking for mugwort <laughs> plants, tap me up. I don't know how I've got so many. I'm, I'm genuinely, like my mum's growing me millions. So anyway, themes of Beltane are the green man. So you might want to have some depictions of him on your altar. The other themes are crowning of the May Queen, the goddess's fertility, union of the goddess and the god and the god's ascent into manhood and sex and sex and sex. <laughs> Beltane is the perfect time to go out and celebrate the tree, like again, especially a hawthorn, rowan or birch, but the tree spirit will welcome your attention, whichever kind of tree it is. You might want to sit with it, talk to it, dance around it, akin to the maypole, honour the tree and its fertility, hang ribbons from its branches. You know, if you're, again, this is another thing that I'm always like, don't like say just to do it anywhere, you know, it might be your own tree. Uh, a bit like the Clutie tree where you hang ribbons and make little wishes or a little prayer. So you might want to do that. Beltane is a good time to work on the following in your craft. So you might want to make offerings to the Fae. You might want to work on fertility spells, purica pur purification spells. And this all ties in with the fire element too. Making or refreshing charms. Again, I feel like that, ch that ties in with the kind of the saining, the purification, mm -hmm. things like ritual baths that also ties into that. Um, prosperity work, it's all about abundance, growth at this time of year. Sex magic, of course, love magic, creativity spells, focusing on igniting or reigniting passion of all kinds. Perhaps some glamour magic by washing your face in Beltane's morning dew for beauty and attraction energy. Now, I personally find that for me, everything I do spell work around Beltane is very much aligned with fire. So it might be, you know, kind of, I just like to use a little fire in my practice to symbolise the Beltane traditions at this time. Um, I'm going to give you a really lovely Beltane incense recipe that you might want to have a go at making. And this is said to help bless your home, 
during your Beltane ritual and it kind of ties in against those old Beltane traditions. So with your mortar and pestle, you might just want to blend. And again, like change this up with herbs that are relevant for this time of year. But you could try it with three tisps of ground, ground frankincense, two tisps of ground dragon's blood, one of my favourites, one tisp of rose, one tisp of jasmine, half a tisp of mugwort, I've got tons of that, and a quarter of a tisp of cinnamon. And before we move on to Rachel's section, I'm going to give you the May Queen chant. And again, I think this is really beautiful. The leaves are budding across the land on the ash and oak and hawthorn trees. Magic rises around us in the forest and the hedges are filled with laughter and love. Dear lady, we offer you a gift, a gathering of flowers picked by our hands woven into the circle of endless life. The bright colours of nature herself blend together to honour you. Queen of Spring, as we give you honour this day, spring is here and the land is fertile, ready to offer up gifts in your name. We pay you tribute, Our Lady, daughter of the Fae, and ask your blessing this Beltane. So I'll add that to the show notes if you feel that you wish to add that to any of your ritual work. But before we jump into Rachel's shamanic section, I'm actually really excited about what Rachel's going to be talking to you about today. So and the rest of this episode as well, there's still loads more to come. I need to tell you about Rachel and I um, and my new little booklet, like a zinni called The Hedge Witch's Garden. This is our first little almanac book we have released from our small book press print the hedge witches library and we are so excited and this has been a real little labor of love well not little labor it's been a big labor of love (laughs) um (laughs) and our book covers beltane and litha in depth from the hedge witches take on it it's been so lovely to produce but it has like you say not not a little endeavor at all but an amazing one um and inside you can find plant magic spell work ritual work information on deities and the fae kitchen witchery hedge riding and various shamanic practices um the book's available to order through etsy for eight pounds and we've been posting it out to pretty much i say we've been posting it out carly's been posting it out to pretty much (laughs) And we'll be making further books to reflect um, the Sabbaths moving forward as well. So we'll leave a link in the show notes if you would like to order one. Oh, and thank you to everybody who's ordered one already, because we put it out on like Patreon and um, Instagram. And you guys have been amazing, honestly. Like we literally sold out. So we're on our second print run now. And it's been It's been wonderful seeing this little baby go out there. So thank you ever so much. And thank you if you do order one, because it means that, oh, it's just honestly, this is what this is what we've been wanting to do for so long. (laughs) And we will be doing little happy dances around the phallic maypole. So thank you. (laughs) When people send us pictures of them arriving in their new forever homes, it's just like nothing else. That feeling's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's so lovely. And it's been, I mean, I've sent them out to, uh, I've sent them to France, I've sent them to France, Canada, America, 
the UK, like all, it's gone to all sorts of places and it's been amazing. So thank you. Yes, thank you. So shamanic wise this time, I, I always sort of leave it to the last minute to decide what to do shamanic wise because either there's something really obvious or I have to see how I'm feeling talking about um, Beltane or whatever Sabbath we're dealing with. And I think with it being a fire festival and wanting to uncover the fire that's within us, I wanted to talk about the shamanic concept of power songs. And I think most, if not all people listening to this podcast will be able to relate to the idea that music can affect or enhance our emotions. The only reason I said most at first um, and not asserted that all people can share this view is because I can't imagine I'm the only one who's had a relatively unusual experience of music throughout my life. When you first interviewed me for the White Witch podcast, we spoke about this because I knew you were going to ask me what sort of music I listen to. And for such a chunk of my life, I wasn't able for various reasons to allow music to have the kind of impact on me that it could have done or that it does now. And that's not really because of it must be to do with some external forces, but I think it was about my own perceived understanding of what was right or wrong about music. It was very, very odd, and I don't really know why I grew up like that, but I did. Um, I think it peaks and troughs in importance or relevance for many people, probably to different extremes, and probably at different mm. times in people's own lives as well. But I think if you can tap into beginning to understand how music and sound affect you and impacts you, this is where you can find your power. So with where I, sorry, go on. Really, sorry, it's so funny that you brought this up today because we don't always know what we're going to talk about individually until the day. And I always associate music really heavily with Clairaudience. And Mm -hmm. Rachel and I, obviously we, 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 we kind of met, and I don't want to take, I just want to interject and say this because Rachel and I kind of met as a result of our, strange psychic experiences didn't we yeah that's kind of yeah. how we really got talking um and we both have like lots of different messages come up and I always get like songs come up in my dreams and yeah. we Rachel and I talk about this a lot but it's really funny that you're doing this topic today because last night I had a dream that my nan was joining a band and I had to take her there and she was joining this band singing and I had to make sure that she was like behaving herself and that the band you know that she was like behaving herself and doing what she was meant to be doing and then my mum rang me this morning and said that my dad had dreamt that they were in the supermarket and Dolly Parton was continuously singing songs because she was on the tannoy working in the supermarket so I've had all these dreams last night about songs and singing and now you're talking about (laughs) well we're always in tune though aren't we because do you remember that time you woke up and you were like oh I've been thinking about this is it in excess song or something and and you were and I was like oh my god that's something that my husband plays all the time that's his music you've tuned into and I knew it wasn't for me because I couldn't take the song and I said like and I was just telling you because I had no idea what it was about and you're like no that's the song I met my husband he used to pick me up playing that song and I was like oh that's for you then and I'd let you you can have that but but you know it's so good that you're talking about this because um a lot of people will have and I know you're looking at it from a different aspect, but I think we underrate like how many messages that you can receive through songs that come up and music in general, yeah. you know, I feel like there's so many messages that can be passed on through that also. And it's kind of a bit of a theme for us a lot of the time. 
I think so. When I did my initial training, one of the things we had to do was um, because there was an NLP element and it was obviously hypnotherapy as well. And we were looking at how to get the best working relationship with your client. One way was to assess what sort of processing, which sense they process things with um, predominantly. So we had to fill in these questionnaire things. And I was really level on um, all of them, all of the other ones, sight, uh, like vis you know, visual things and even smell and taste, I think. But sound was really low down. Oh, kinesthetic would be the other one, like, you know, touch, touchy feely things. But sound was, was like almost non-existent for me. And I've had to work on understanding why that is and then build it up so that I can find the power that's in that that I wasn't experiencing before. Um, so with where I am now, I've got many ways in which sound and music impact on my life. And it's something that's grown within me organically and I've become more comfortable in myself. And I think I just wanted to mention briefly with a slight warning to people that may have had um, traumatic experiences of others' deaths around them. Maybe turn it down for 30 seconds if you don't want to listen or skip this bit. But um, the absence of music in my life on one very specific occasion told me so much about my own feelings. And it was only with the return of it into my life that I was able to realise what I'd been lacking and that I was recovering and I know that sounds really cryptic and I'm very open and, and honest always and I'm happy to to share this but it was um some weeks after my cousin committed suicide that I realized I just hadn't played any music or sung anything at all for weeks and I had known I felt flat I had known I had wanted to do particular things but whenever it was that I then, you know, I'm always singing. I'm, I'm singing in the kitchen, I'm singing, I've got a song for everything. Somebody says something and I'm singing a song for it. Um, not, not in any particular great tune or wonderful voice, but you know, I enjoy it. And it's something that indicates that everything's going okay for me, I suppose. And it was, like I say, a number of weeks after he died that um, I, I sat, I started, I sort of broke into song and then caught myself like, this is wrong but then I realized how long I hadn't done that for and it enabled me to realize I was on a different stage of processing that very particular type of grief from Ryan's death um there was also and I hadn't made notes on this I've only just remembered it as I was thinking about it the two songs that were played at his funeral are not particularly on the radio very much at all but shortly after he died or after the funeral I should say they were on repeatedly. I kept driving somewhere and there it would be on the song again wow. you know, making me burst into tears. And I think, I don't believe for a second, I only noticed those at that time. Mm -hmm. I genuinely think they were only there at that time, at least for me to receive them. And again, yeah. another thing I need, obviously needed to get that emotion out of me. And it was music that helped me to do that. So I hope I haven't overshared and triggered people or brought about any unnecessary feelings. But it was just the best way I could come up with of sharing my own experience of the power of sound. Um, and it's only one way that its significance is demonstrated to me, but it really felt like the most prominent and obvious. So I'll just take a deep breath after all that because it still hurts after <laughs> a number of years. That's really important to put across. And I feel like, you know, people will absolutely relate to that. And I feel that what you said was really poignant about had a time of not singing and not you know always mm. having a little dip and so on and it just comes back to that shamanic 
aspect of when was the last time that you sang when was the last time you danced and when the soul feels I don't know when any form of trauma or anything like that happens you can understand why we don't enter those primal activities because we're yeah. not there no exactly it's like you've you, you know you've fled and and you come back slowly and it takes time um but it was a real massive indicator for me and like I say something that probably caught me off guard because I hadn't mm. noticed its absence and that was what was so key for me mm. so I I'm hoping that the concept of a power song should be familiar to most people even not necessarily in its truest shamanic form because it's often the case that people will say they have a song that fires them up or motivates them you know we have different playlists on music platforms for music for when you're driving music for when you're cleaning your house you know thing music makes you feel a particular way and it doesn't have to be the same way for different people you know, the same song can elicit different emotions and that's fine perhaps there's a song you always listen to when you're training or before you embark on an exam I had a particular Def Leppard song I used to listen to before my GCSEs because my boyfriend was into them at the time um, but it fired me up and it made me think yes I'm ready for this so just something that fills you with confidence and feelings of your own personal power and oh, in I feel like we need to like think on some power songs like I'm just trying to think on ones <laughs> that I would have used around important times but it does shift your emotion so much like you're literally you can literally manipulate your mind to yeah. that whole energy and I think that's such a powerful you know concept and yeah I just think it's really good that you brought this up because I sort of have forgotten about that and actually working with that yeah and like I say it's something I have to be very conscious of because I think it can so easily slip to the bottom of the pile for me and I don't want it to because I, I recognize its value um so song in shamanic practice is is just you know the most basic fundamental form of of um this rhythm it's power and something that's designed to induce the altered state of consciousness that allows the practitioner to enter into other worlds and perform the tasks that they intend to carry out so through something really simple there's, there's a real juxtaposition of simple rhythmic beating of a drum or shaking of a rattle but it can induce a state powerful enough to enter other worlds and engage with other worldly beings and if a simple drum beat can do this what more can songs do for you all across the world we have yogic chanting religious chanting and Many of our listeners may well be sol solitary practitioners of hedgewitchery or witchcraft, but chanting as an individual or as part of a group may well be part of your practice. And when you're in a room of people doing the same thing, the energy that it raises is undeniable. I don't think you could really sit there and say, no, nope, not affecting me. It, it just does. I did a shamanic sweat lodge before Christmas. And whilst we waited for the next load of hot rocks to be brought in, one of the chaps that was there said, should we just do an um, which we all did. And it was immense. There were maybe 10 of us in there and the vibration was just huge and so, so powerful. And it also drew attention to my absolutely appalling lung capacity when other people were holding <laughs> much better arms than I was. But it just gets me thinking, because I'm thinking at it, um, like the, I mean, because I feel like there's such an affirmation in certain songs as well, because that I always think back, one of my friends said to me, there's one song, she said, that song always reminds me of you, because I was obsessed with it when it came out. And it's like, I feel like that you've got to get like a, some of the 
proper diva songs like Mary J. Blige. There's yeah. something she did fine and on it the words are literally so I like what I see when I'm looking at me and I'm walking past the mirror and I'm like and it's like not stressing about you and what you're gonna do and and it's just so affirmative and I feel like you know certain songs it's like there's the other one and it's like I am woman I'm sexy I'm divine and you know sometimes you can combine you can combine the affirmation with the power of the the sound as well exactly um, really powerful and and I think another one as well sorry because I've really gone deep on this because music <laughs> is absolutely my thing and I think it's the Trollabundin song which is a very much like a Viking seer type song and that's one I use as a power song in rituals that I do because it's very much about magic and the magician and things like that mm -hmm. and um yeah that I think that's something I've never really considered so no I, I like that thank you Rachel <laughs> Oh, well, it's really, like I say, it's really, really important to me now and perhaps should have been before or maybe if it had been all my life, maybe I wouldn't be focused on it now. So all things as they're meant to be, I'm sure. But there's just something so powerful in rhythmic and musical voice, uh, musical use, sorry, of the human voice. And we are, after all, just creatures on this earth. And if we have the ears to truly hear, we know the power of birdsong or animal call. and We share that same power if we can just find the tools to use it. So how do shamans find that and use their power song? We were encouraged to find our power song during our training. And at that point, you know, being uh, 12 years ago, this was one of the areas I struggled with the most. So it's uh, not surprising, perhaps, given the mixed history of experience of sound and music that I've described a little of. However, I have to share a story that turned this around. But first, I should explain what a power song is. So in short, it's a way of offering your own intention through vibration to the universe and asking that it responds in kind to enable a connection between the practitioner and the universe, be that through um, speaking with guides or access to worlds or information. And you can obviously take this idea as far as you like. If you consider that everything living will have its own vibration, you can tune into that vibration and learn the song of that thing in order to communicate with it. So you may have one power song, which is to access another world or do a specific journey or all your journeys. But you may have many power songs for different purposes or for working with different plants or objects. Um, it's not an exclusively shamanic or even witchy idea. In fact, I've got a friend who's a tree surgeon who I'm hoping to have on the podcast to share his fascinating insights about messages the plant world gives to the animal world. But he shared a link with me to a site where a group of people have recorded the song of different types of trees in different types of weather and translated those vibrations into music that's decipherable to the human ear. And it's amazing. I've seen this on programs before. I know you have as well, where they literally plug into a plant with whatever this machine is they make, and they're able to play the sound back in a way that humans can receive as music. You've come across it, I think, was it in to do with the fungi, fantastic fungi or something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Oh, God, you could spend a lifetime or many lifetimes learning the songs of all the plants and trees and soil and fungi and rocks and anything at all and still have barely have scratched the surface of all the songs that they're capable of producing if you think that, that you know the weather changes um the song that they produce and that was even down to I'll have to link this thing that he sent me because I'm sure it's down to like what the humidity is and how much rain there had been and that really detailed 
how, how wet and warm is this plant to be able to produce this particular song. But in producing vibrations, it feels to me at least to be a certainty that they are communicating on a vibrational level with other beings. And this is what you can seek to do too if you discover your power song. It was suggested to me in my training that you just know your power song and I struggled, as I said. I did come up with a song and it was some pop song or other that just popped into my head. I can't even recall what. Um, I might try and remember because it might have some comedy value like the Def Leppard story. <laughs> I don't know. We'll it's probably a Taz and Dave version of something. <laughs> it might be. Anyway, yeah. it, it felt at the time to be mediocre at best response to what we're being asked to do I just really struggled with that task in a way that I didn't with others and that said as you said earlier you and I have had many conversations over the time that we've known each other about the songs we wake up singing over and over in our heads and the complete relevance that they often have to our days or lives or each other's days or lives so I don't want to undervalue pop songs or whatever other song you might come across. It's just that for me, that song did not feel like my fundamental song. Yeah. So I'll tell you now about how I feel I discovered my own true power song. Um, and it's actually two, two songs. And I hope it is going to be more before too long because of the way they've come about and how beautiful it is. So I haven't made notes on this, so I'm just winging it because... Um, we had a day that was relatively um, cloudy, but you know, a day that could have gone either way, could have been sunny, could have been clouded over completely. And I drove out in the car. I can't remember where I was going, what I was doing, but it was only a short journey. And as I drove up, up the road that my road is off, I looked up at where the clouds were and the sun was behind that particular group of, of clouds. And I felt sounds just come to me. And there weren't words, but there wasn't an, an absolute undeniable tune and rhythm to it. So being in the car on my own, it's quite a safe place, isn't it, to explore <laughs> these random sounds that are coming to your head. So I started to sing this, if, if you could call it singing, sort of a chanting singing thing. And it was only a few lines of a repeated pattern. But as I did that, I could visualise the sun coming through the clouds really, really brightly. And by the time I came back round, having sung this song a few times, done whatever I needed to do, as I drove them back up the road in the same direction to then come back up my road, the sun was out in exactly the way I'd seen in my mind. And I was a little like, I wasn't a little, I was a lot taken aback by it because whilst it could absolutely be a coincidence, everything could be, and I'm always open to that possibility, you feel when something's not a coincidence don't you you know that it isn't and yeah. I remember coming back and messaging you and my friend Charlotte and saying this has just happened and I'm totally gobsmacked by it and then thinking to myself well I'll never be able to recall that song you know it just sort of happened it was sounds not words how will I remember it but I did and I can you know I, I use it now I remember it to this day it's very it's within me now and it's never going to go um the second song, I don't know when exactly that came to me, but that was different because I went to sing my power song and found another one coming out of my mouth and once again had that same experience of, I'm not going to be able to repeat this, but I did. One of them is very much more energising, that's the second one, whereas the other is more about connection. Um, I, I, I'm not very good at describing this. I think you have to experience it for yourself, but I waited like 10 
years plus to actually have my power song. So, you know, I don't think it's, I think you can find a song that works for you for particular occasions, but I also think you know when your true power song comes out of you. I don't know whether that's helpful or not. <laughs> and what Rachel's going to tell us next is that she's got a recording of her singing it after the break. <laughs> No, I no, but I love this concept. And, and I think the first time that, um, I mean, I think I peaked with my power song. I think mine was the wassailing song on our Yule episode. I mean, that, that was my <laughs> finest moment when it comes to power songs. No, I'm joking. But I, I feel like this is something I'd like to explore, definitely because music is, you know, um, really important to me. And I, I think for me, I kind of fell in love with the concept of music in ritual and felt the most, I think I recognised its most importance relating to my craft and I guess feeling powerful using it in the work I was doing when I kind of took it from the shamanic drumming of more like only having um, known of like the kind of Native American, you know, the traditional shamanic drumming that we're more used to of Native American Indian, you know, that yes. kind of thing. Yeah. But then when I found out about like the Sears in like the Norse, like, you know, like the Norse yeah. um, tribes. And when I looked into like the the way that the Sears created sound and how they used it and they kind of make quite like masculine, like female Sears made like quite masculine sounds and blended it in with singing that was very kind of ethereal as well. It's like a total blend. And I feel like that's something I'd like to, I, I did think about before, like actually wanting to create some of that myself and use yeah. it. So I feel like that's a route that I, I might look at well, I've got the giggles again because I can't remember whether it was actually my power song or something similar that I was sort of singing around the breakfast table one day because somebody had said something and I was like, oh, yeah, it's like this. And my husband spun around and looked at me and went, I never <laughs> make that noise. You sound like a monk chanting. And I was like, I know. It's, it's what the what now? Yeah. Like... <laughs> but it's such a... It comes from so deep within you. That's what it is. That's why it carries like it does. But honestly, his face was such a picture. Ridiculous. What a ridiculous episode. <laughs> no, I love it. Well, I think at that point, I'd better shut up and not um, not say any more silly things before it starts regressing to um, previous conversations. But... Um, yeah, after we've said our goodbyes, we then have that additional bit with a, a, a short interview and little extract, of, well, not extract, uh, a telling of a story relating to Beltane and Bell the Giant. But thank you very much for tolerating our ridiculous giggles today. And um, Sorry, we'll put notes of anything we can find on, the, on our socials, won't we? I'm just really wishing like we could say it at the very end of the episode Rachel will be singing for us making us nobody needs to hear that oh before we do oh, go actually... never trashy. come on Rachel hold it together we're at the end <laughs> so... um, you know how I said it had come to me in the car I read something somewhere and I wish I could find what that was but it did suggest that things like driving your car elicit the right brain state brain waves whatever to to zone into or tune into that kind of thing so there is like a, a reason why it would happen on that occasion so it might be that you just have to go and take a long drive concentrating on the road obviously but um also wondering what's gonna 
unearth from inside you? What I kind of song you could give birth like, to? Yeah, it was like a future Adele created as a result of finding their power song. You know, they've suddenly turned wow. into a songwriter. Following a whole load of whole Watch load of winter this. babies and a new Adele. This is what's coming from this episode. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just can't stop thinking about people putting dick pics on their altar. <laughs> That's anyway, exactly where my brain was. <laughs> whatever you do, have a great Beltane. We will put all the links of everything into the show notes. But again, you know, this is one of our favourite times of the year. So enjoy, get out in nature you know, have have all the fun and we'll be back soon. But yeah, sending you lots of love and thank you so much as ever for all your support, your reviews. If you could leave us a review for the show, we'd be ever so grateful. And thank you for listening. Hi, so welcome back for a little additional section of um, the Hedgewitch's Almanac All About Beltane, where I'm going to be talking to Tom Phillips, who I came across only this week as author of a book I have just bought for my children, which is Leicestershire Folk Tales for Children. Now, the reason I came across this is partly because I live in Leicestershire and also because obviously I love folk tales. Um, I should just say hello, Tom, because you're sat here waiting. waiting (laughs) Hello, thank you for having me on. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. So I got in touch with Tom because having read the first of the first couple of stories in the book um, fell in love with them straight away things I was not familiar with necessarily certainly in relation to Leicester and the second story in the book I think it is is all about Beltane and Bel the Giant um, who obviously in relation to pagan and Celtic things is all about the the sun god the shining one so I thought it might be interesting for our listeners Tom to have you on just to talk about how you got into this and perhaps to tell us the tale of Bell the Giant. So um, just wondered, first of all, what drew you to folklore in the first place? Well, firstly, thank you for buying the book. Um, as a struggling author and storyteller, you know, any book sells is, is fantastic. Um, folk tales. Yes, yeah, so I'm a country lad, country bumpkin, born and bred in the countryside, South Leicestershire, and grew up with tales of the village it gave me that sense of connection you know I was told about the mostly the, the spooky scary ones because they're the ones that stand out told about the the horse and carriage reared off the road on Jingle Bell's corner and you can see it sometimes at night and it you know, mostly carriages and men hanging themselves in barns because of dead uh, wife and children and that kind of stuff and seeing these places and knowing the stories that go with them it really gave me a sense of place I really fell in love growing up with where I was and then as I got older I realized these are folk tales and everywhere's got folk tales they've all got these little snippets it could be something quite monumental and quite big and it could be about a dragon or giants or something but it could be something quite small one of the best I've heard and I can't for the life remember how it goes but it was a tale about over in Swatham in Norfolk about um this guy and his pig and trying to get his pig pregnant and it was just <laughs> hilarious when the storyteller told it it's hilarious it's all based on folk tales and it's where my love of folk tales 
and being a storyteller, having done it for the best part of 15 years now, um, you start to realise that the stories you tell, the myths and the legends, they are all got their roots in folk tales. And yeah. so, you know, the, if you like myth, you like legend, you like stories, you like folk tales. Because they're yeah. the story of the everyday people. Yeah, I, I totally um, connect with that idea that it does bring you connected to the place. Um, I'm not local to Leicester originally, but um, I've been here for nearly 22 years now. And um, I love the place straight away, but the more I learn about it and the more local history and things, and obviously this is about Leicestershire, so it won't have um, the same appeal to other people that it does to me. However, it connects you to any place. Um, we did actually go to one of the places today that's in your yeah. book, the, yeah. the Ash and the Oak. My friend lives in Peckleton. It's not far yeah. from here. So we went yeah. to that one. And it just feels lovely to know that at least you're somewhere that someone has told a story about. The, the truth of the story and the beginnings and origins of that story matter very little, really. It's the fact that the story is told and told again and how they change over time. I'm fascinated by all of that, really. Um, I'll just pull up my questions again because I know I had another one. Oh, yeah, I suppose, what do you feel? I've maybe answered this a little bit from my own perspective without realising that was the next question, but what do you feel is the magic of folk tales? The magic of folk tales is that we can all connect with them. The reason they, they stay alive and they keep getting told is that they have something about them, something that we can connect with a real base level um and then it brings us close to the to to the area where it's based i mean you get this very similar stories cropping up for example um moonrakers of norfolk where they're trying to rake the moon out of the pond they think it's fallen in but you find that kind of story cropping up throughout the british Isles. um there's there's another one um so my other book you might be interested in it's forest folk and that spans the entire country and in that um you find similar stories dotted around a certain area um yeah. in yorkshire you've got stories of hobs which are essentially house elves from harry potter jk okay. rowling stole it from the idea of hobs and these stories, it's about a dozen or so around a similar area, the Forest of Gainsborough and that area. All the same kind of thing. It's house elf. Uh, it either disappears when it gets finds clothing or it becomes geeky and malevolent and it stays in causes clothe them and get offended by it. But they are covered in hair. You don't really need to clothe them, which is very helpful until you clothe them. But then you go over to Norway. Um, Denmark area, there's stories very similar of a type of troll, pixie kind of thing that does the same kind of thing. So you've got these folk tales, they, they transcend the basic However, they become really interesting and you can start recognising pieces in them. Like you said about Yerk and the Ash, in yeah. my story, I, I describe where to go. Park up at Beckleton Church, yeah. walk down the hill path, you get to it, and you can follow that and feel a sense of being in the school. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think um, the more you find the same stories cropping up in different areas or different cultures, then you start to think, 
perhaps there's some kind of ring of truth about this you know where does the what's the fundamental metaphorical or other meaning that's behind it that means that it is so widely spread this story yes well yeah i forget who it is now but there's uh the idea of only seven types of story yes and to take the oak and the ash it's essentially a romeo and juliet story. yes romeo and juliet is based on the story of uh, Pyramus of Thisbe, which the 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 group of reenact in um, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, which Shakespeare wrote before Romeo and Juliet, and so you can see him going, "Oh, I like that story. I'll take that story. I'll make it to my own. It's Romeo and Juliet, and it's a story that's been all all for centuries anyway." Um, but what differentiates the stories is where they're played and where they're from, and, and that's the essence of folklore and folk tales. It's it's people making that story their own. Yes, it's only one set of different stories, their own story, their own version. And it's got they recognize dialects, they recognize places, they recognize closer to the area we live in. Yeah. So bearing in mind what you've just said then about it being telling tales. Originally, when I contacted you, I said, would you mind me? summarizing the story or reading an excerpt, excerpt from it and you said well how about since i am a tale teller i tell the tale which would be wonderful so i wondered if you might share your beltane bell the giant's tale with us now yes yes of course i would um that's the thing with, with books are great books um a storyteller once told me uh graham langley he's from birmingham area very experienced storyteller. he once told me that books are like taking a picture of a river it's beautiful, it's lovely, but it only catches the river at that particular moment in time. The river is ever-changing. The water could be high, it could be low, it could be eroding. Slowly, it can change over time, and that's what happens with stories. Although I've written Bell's story down in my book, when I tell it, and the more I tell it, the more it changes. So I'm going to tell you the story of Bell the Giant and his connection with Leicestershire. And it starts... Long ago, way before people came to this earth, and we start with Bel and we start with Danu. Danu, the goddess of all goddesses. Bel, he is the god of spring and summer and light and fire. And they are in love. And they are stuck in a forever repeating cycle of love. You see Bel. He starts off the season in early spring as a young man and he comes to the lands around Leicester and he finds his one true love, Danu. And there she is, fair-haired, fair-skinned. Belle is a giant, she's of normal size, but they frolic and dance around the, the countryside and around the field. Life is good, but as the spring turns into the summer, Belle grows at an accelerator. He, he starts to get old. He gets to midlife by the start of summer. And then by the end of summer, he's starting to wane. He's starting to get into the, the later years of his life. As autumn appro approaches, he becomes an old man and he takes himself up north and he finds a cave where he curls up in the back and he, he goes to sleep and he, he gets reborn as a babe. And then through winter, he grows into a child and then into a young man where he returns back in spring. Danu, when this happens in autumn, 
well, she becomes sad, missing her one true love, and her heart grows cold. With the coldness of her heart comes the coldness of the land that she brought about winter. Her hair turns black, her skin turns blue, and winter takes grip. Until spring starts to come back, and with the first signs of spring, the snowdrops and the crocuses, her heart starts to warm, knowing that Belle is not long uh, of becoming back to the, this land, and so she turns back into fair skin and fair hair. This ritual carries on for millennia until Christianity starts to creep into the land. Christianity, the people of this land, they start to question these old gods, start to question the fact that we're being told there's one true God, yet here are other gods, and surely then they can't be gods. Bell is on his way back to Leicester. He was going to meet Darno in the centre of Leicester in the spring. As he's walking, he's about three miles north, north uh, west of Leicester, and he comes across a group of men. A group of men, they look up at the town and said, uh, oh, look, it's Bell, Bell, Bell. Great God, <laughs> you can't be a God, surely. We are told we are, there is only one true God. Bell just laughs it off, his big booming laugh. Oh, oh, oh. who believe whatever you like, but uh, I can tell you now I am most definitely a god. And so they shouted, well, prove it. He said, well, how, how would you like me to prove it? And they challenged him to get from where they were to the centre of Leicester in three bounds. And Bell, even for a giant of his size, many houses tall, he thought this was going to be hard. But it was up for the challenge as long as he could have help. At which the men sniggered, help, he needs help. This great God, he needs help. He whistled. And over the hills came a great mare, a horse, sorrel-coloured, sorrel, brown-coloured horse. And there, where he met the mare, the sorrel mare, Bell used a giant outcrop of rock to mount. Oral mare. And this place became known as a place where Bell mounted Sorrel. We now know it as Mount Sorrel. He then whispered into the horse's ears and told the horse what she needed to do. One giant leap, they landed about a mile closer to the city centre. That place was called One Leap, now called One Leap. The second leap. Well, the horse, she tried to leap even further for her master, her rider. But she tried so hard that when she landed, her lungs burst, her heart burst, the ligaments and the muscles in her body burst, all inside her burst, and that place became known as Burstall, or Burstall, we now call it. The third and final leap, well, it was a leap, the poor sorrel mare was on the edge of death and she managed to leap a few yards, a few hundred yards and, and she landed heavily through her rider. Bell landed on the floor and struck his head in a rock. There, Bell died. A great god dying there because of the challenge of a bunch of non-believers.
Well, these non-believers, these Christians, they caught up with Al and they looked upon this giant creature, this horse and its rider. They realized how magnificent they were. And even if they didn't believe he was a god, he was still a creature. So was this horse of this world. It should have been marveled and wondered upon. Didn't have to worship him as a god, but just accept him for who he was and what he was in this world. So they took pity, took a great big trench, and they rolled Bell's body into the trench and they buried it. And there was known as Bell's grave, now known as Bell Grave. And the story it goes on. The more you read the book, you see that Bell's story directly affects Danu's story and Danu develops into a rather different beast altogether probably one of the most famous folk characters from Leicestershire I'm not going to spoil that for the listeners they should uh, buy the book and have a read and find out what happens to Danu definitely thank you so much I love that tale and I know that part of my love is because I'm in Leicester and I know these places however how you finish the story talking about, um, you know, the impact upon the men who'd set this challenge of then realising what they'd done and the idea that you should appreciate people. I mean, that for what they are, that transcends generations, doesn't it? There's no limit to the value of a story like that. And for me, that's a lot of the magic of folk tales and any um, metaphorical tales as well is that you get moral lessons from them I grew up with a lot of moral stories and um, I always really appreciate them and like to think that they have shaped me as a person so um, yeah thank you that was really brilliant so um, where can people find you on social media where can they buy your book right so my book is available uh, through the history press Um, the history press are fantastic they really support storytellers and they use storytellers to write their folktale book children or whether it's for adults um you can look on the history press's website um or you can search through amazon Leicestershire folk tales for children or forest folk tales for children if you want something a bit more uh, national rather than local uh, i am on facebook as tom the tale teller and i'm on youtube as tom the tale teller philip on there i've got a series of um storytelling that i did during lockdown just to keep keep in in touch with people and keep storytelling and a new series that i've started uh, recently called folklore found where i try and find folk folklore Just try and make it a nice easy watch nice bit of music nice bit of walking around a bit of scenery really give you that sense of uh, the base of where this folk is and then explain the folktale and, and tell you the, the story of, of that folktale yes that's where you'll find me look at tom the perfect well hopefully anyone that is interested will come and find you and tell their own stories from there moving forward i would love to hear their own stories i'm always open to hearing new stories well thank you so much for giving up some of your time and at such short notice i'm really grateful and um hopefully we'll have more tales at some point in the future you never know 